Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Well, for today's No Restraint podcast, which, by the way, has been recorded a number of times already, but I have had a technological glitch and haven't been able to get it up and running. So I'm in the studio with Sharina, my producer, and we decided we're going to get this done one way or another. So this is the third time I'm recording this No Restraint podcast. It better be good. That's all I'm going to say. So let me tell you a little bit about what has been going through my mind. Obviously, the biggest stories this week have all involved Donald Trump. And the one thing I can tell you is that the media loves Donald Trump, even though they hate Donald Trump. He's the man they love to hate. And he makes ratings happen. I look at CNN and the numbers that they've been in the toilet for the last year and a half. MSLSD can't get a ratings to win any day part. And Fox continues to lead. So I was thinking, this is probably the best thing that could have happened to CNN, and yet they didn't carry Mar-a-Lago's speech last night. So they're a little late to the party, but I promise they will catch up. But I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I really think means um, that we need to look carefully at these times we're living with. You know, men like nations always think they're eternal. What man in his 20s or in his 30s doesn't believe, at least subconsciously, that he's going to live forever? In the springtime of your youth, right, it's an endless summer. And as you pass 70, which is where I'm heading, it's harder to hide from reality, especially as you start to lose friends and lose family members. Nations also have seasons. And imagine a Roman citizen of the second century contemplating an empire that stretched from Britain to the Near East, thinking, this is going to last forever. Forever was about 500 years, give or take. Not bad, but they're gone. France was pivotal in the 17th and 18th centuries, Now the land of Charles Martel is on its way to becoming part of the Muslim Ummah. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, the sun never set on the British Empire. Now Albion exists in perpetual twilight. It's got an aged king who finally replaced a very aged queen, and that's kind of a symbol for a nation that's in terminal decline. In the 1980s, Japan seemed poised to buy the world business schools and you were teaching Japanese to anybody who wanted to get into management. Today, its birth rate is so low and its population aging so rapidly 
that an industry has actually sprung up in Japan to remove the remains of elderly Japanese who die alone. How sad is that? I was born in 1953, almost at the midpoint of the 20th century, the American century. America's prestige and influence were never greater. Thanks to the greatest generation, we won a world war, fought throughout most of Europe and Asia and the Pacific. We reduced Germany to rubble and put the rising sun to bed, and it set the stage for almost half a century of unprecedented prosperity. We stopped the spread of communism in Europe and in Asia, and we fought international terrorism. We rebuilt our enemies and lavished foreign aid on much of the world, and we built skyscrapers and sent rockets to the moon. We conquered polio, and now COVID. We explored the mysteries of the universe and the wonders of DNA, which is actually the blueprint of life. But where is the glory that once was Rome? America has moved from a relatively free economy to socialism, which has worked so well nowhere in the world. We've gone from a Republican government guided by a constitution to a regime of revolving elites. We have less freedom with each passing year. And like a signpost to the coming reign of terror, the cancel culture is everywhere. We've traded the American Revolution for the Cultural Revolution. The pathetic creature in the White House is an empty vessel filled by his handlers. At the G7 summit, Dr. Jill had to lead him around like a child. In 1961, when we were young and vigorous, our leader was too. Now a feeble nation is technically led by the oldest man to ever serve in the presidency. We can't defend our borders. We can't defend our history, including monuments to past greatness. We can't defend our streets. Our cities have become anarchist playgrounds. We're a nation of dependents and mendicants and misplaced charity. We have homeless veterans camping in the streets while illegal aliens are put up in hotels. The President of the United States can't even quote the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, our father, you know, the thing, correctly. Ivy League graduates routinely fail history tests that fifth graders in my fifth grade class could easily pass. Crime rates are soaring, and we blame the Second Amendment and slash police budgets. Doesn't make any sense at all. Our culture is certifiably insane. Men who think they're women, people who fight racism by seeking to convince members of one race that they're inherently evil and others that they are perpetual victims. A psychiatrist who was lecturing at Yale recently said she fantasizes about unloading a revolver into the head of any white person. We slaughter the unborn in the name of freedom while our birth rate dips lower year after year. Our national debt is so high that we can no longer even pretend that we will repay it one day. It's a $30 trillion monument to our improvidence and refusal to confront reality. Our entertainment is sadistic, nihilistic, and as enduring as a candy bar wrapper thrown in the trash. 
Our music is noise that spans the spectrum from annoying to repulsive. Patriotism is called an insurrection. Treason is celebrated and perversion sanctified. A man in blue gets less respect than a man in a dress. We're asking soldiers to fight for a nation our leaders no longer believe in. How meekly most of us submitted to Fauciism, the regime of face masks and social distancing and lockdowns and hand sanitizers. Well, that shows the impending death of the American spirit. So how do nations slip from greatness to obscurity? Well, by fighting endless wars they can't or won't win, by accumulating massive debt far beyond their ability to repay, by refusing to guard their borders, allowing the nation to be inundated by an alien horde, surrendering control of their cities to mob rule, allowing the indoctrination of the young, moving from a Republican form of government to an oligarchy, losing our national identity, indulging indolence, abandoning God and faith and family which are the bulwarks of any stable society. In America, every one of these symptoms is pronounced, indicating an advanced stage of the disease. Even if the cause seems hopeless, do we not have an obligation to those who sacrifice so much to give us what we have? I'm surrounded by the ghosts urging me on, the Union soldiers who held Cemetery Ridge at Gettysburg, the battered bastards of Bastogne, those who served in the cold hell of Korea, the guys who went into the jungles of Vietnam, of Southeast Asia, and came home to be reviled, spit upon, and neglected. This is the nation that took in my immigrant grandparents, whose uniform my father and most of my uncles wore in the Second World War. I don't want to imagine a world without America even though it becomes increasingly likely. During Britain's darkest hour, when its professional army was trapped at Dunkirk and a German invasion seemed imminent, Winston Churchill reminded his countrymen, nations that go down fighting rise again, and those that surrender tamely are finished. The same might be said of causes. If we let America slip through our fingers... If we lose without a fight, what will posterity say of us? While the prognosis is far from good, only God knows if America's day in the sun is over. And if it is over, I want you to make sure that people are aware that nobody took it from us. We literally gave it away. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I was thinking about the prosecution of political foes, of course, during this week. And there was an interesting column by Jonathan Tobin in one of the Jewish publications 
that talked about the comparisons between the legal problems of Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu. And it illustrates the way the left in both countries is wrongly trying to use lawfare tactics to take down their foes. These are very heady times for those who hate both Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu. The news that uh, District Attorney Alvin Bragg had actually persuaded a grand jury to indict the former president on charges that we finally got to see yesterday in the arraignment, well, it was greeted with chortles of satisfaction from the left, and in particular from the Jewish left, which has already been celebrating the recent setback that's suffered by the Israeli prime minister after he put judicial reform on hold. The prospect of Trump being booked in New York was not only celebrated by those who call Netanyahu the crime minister because of the long-running legal case that's on uh, corruption charges that he's been fighting on and out and in and out of courts for years, it has also allowed them to see the pair, despite the obvious differences between the two men and the legal stratagems that have been deployed against them and their predicaments as part of a common struggle against what Haaretz called the way they both attack their respective countries democratic institutions. To the left, that's the important point. Their claim is that both Trump and Netanyahu are enemies of democracy. That makes achieving their downfall not so much a matter of alleged wrongdoers getting their comeuppance, but can be portrayed as a righteous cause in which threats to the common good are eliminated by lawfare. In that way, even the flimsiest of charges or the use of tactics that target an individual rather than enforcing the law is normalized rather than condemned as violating legal ethics. Actions that would easily be seen as an abuse of power are justified because of a supposedly higher purpose to the prosecution. As different as the cases against Trump and Netanyahu are, what they have in common is that both men are political leaders being singled out by prosecutors for charges that weren't so much tailored to their circumstances as they were invented for the sole purpose of taking them down. While we haven't seen all the indictments of Trump yet, there's still cases ongoing in Atlanta and in D.C., by all accounts, they're all driven largely by novel legal tactics that focus on things like an alleged payment of hush money to an adult porn star named Stormy Daniels. And while you may find such actions deplorable, they're not illegal. Nevertheless, it's being treated as a form of fraud because it is considered an unreported campaign contribution not by the Federal Elections Commission, mind you, but by D.A. Bragg in New York City. This is an absurd argument that has never been successfully used against any politician and is unlikely to withstand any scrutiny by higher courts, even if the deep blue courts of New York City railroad it through. It's possible that Trump's businesses have also been scrutinized for some possible illegal behavior in ways that practically no other real estate firm has ever been treated in New York. 
other charges that may be pending against Trump in either D.C. or uh, for inciting the January 6th Capitol riot or in Georgia, where he's accused of trying to swing the 2020 presidential election in his favor by looking for more votes? What politician has ever not looked for more votes? Never mind. May have more merit. Still, both of those cases run afoul of other pitfalls, such as the fact that even foolish or bad speech isn't normally treated as criminal. But while Trump is a singular figure who has shattered all sorts of precedents, both good and bad, the only reason that any prosecutor is looking for a way to charge him is because he's a hated political foe. The same is true of the charges against Bibi Netanyahu. Even if the person ultimately responsible for the case, the former Attorney General Avishai Mandelblit, was a former supporter turned political enemy. The three cases against Bibi that are being tried in a Jerusalem district court have, if anything, even less substance to them than the ones against Trump. One concerns his acceptance of expensive gifts of champagne and cigars from admirers, though the nation that doing so constituted a breach of trust or fraud is absurd. The second involves discussions between the prime minister and the publisher of the hostile Yediot Achronat, a newspaper in which Netanyahu suggested that he might support legislation that undermined the Israel Hayam newspaper, which is the pro-BB competition to Yediot, in exchange for favorable coverage. The prosecutors involved labeled that a breach of trust, but here again, it's not clear what existing law, the co- conversion, which led to nothing, by the way, or the conversation didn't amount to anything, what law was broken? The third charge sounds more substantial since it alleges that Bibi Netanyahu traded regulatory decisions that favored the Bezek company for favorable coverage on its Walla news site. But since Walla remained critical of the prime minister, The claim that it was bribery lacks substance. Even if the outlet had changed its tune, here again, there is no law in Israel that states that obtaining favorable coverage is bribery. As with the complicated attempt to use the Stormy Daniels affair against Trump, Netanyahu's foes don't care that the cases against him lack substance. They believe him to be a criminal simply because he's a hated political foe who is difficult to beat at the ballot box. If it takes cases in which a man will be convicted of violating laws that don't actually exist on fake claims of fraud, that's okay, because they see it as similar to charging jazz age crime boss Al Capone with not paying his taxes rather than for murder. The difference is that Capone really was the head of a criminal enterprise. Dislike or disagree with them all you want, but Trump and Netanyahu are not criminals. They are political opponents, and so their foes justify using the legal system against them because they claim they are enemies of democracy against whom the normal rules of political conduct cannot apply. The real threat to democracy is not Trump and Netanyahu. In recent years, one of the standard talking points of the political left in both Israel and here in the U.S. has been to state their fears about an alleged war on democracy that's being waged by their political rivals. 
In the U.S., the claim that Republicans were semi-fascists and bigots who had to be defeated in order to save democracy was a rallying cry for Democrats in the 2022 midterm elections. In Israel in the past three months, hundreds of thousands of opponents of Netanyahu have also been employing the same kind of hyperbole about saving democracy. They believe that the stakes are sufficiently high to justify blocking highways, sabotaging their country's economy and national defense, purportedly to stop judicial reform legislation, but whose main purpose appears to be toppling the government. The arguments in favor of their opposition to judicial reform just don't stand up to scrutiny, and when stripped down to their essentials, amount to a belief on the part of many Israelis that the nationalist and religious voters who favor Netanyahu and his allies can't be allowed to govern. That is why even people like opposition leader Yair Lapid and others in his camp, once ardent critics of the out-of-control and essentially lawless Israeli Supreme Court, now oppose judicial reform. The claims of Democrats that Republicans oppose democracy because of differences over voter integrity laws are just as lacking in substance. Trump may be deserving of criticism for not accepting the legitimacy of election results. I don't believe that, but let's say you do. Yet the willingness of Democrats to shamelessly sabotage his administration with conspiracy theories about Russian collusion and to use their media and big tech allies to silence any negative stories about the Biden family corruption in 2020 shows that they are just as guilty of behaving badly in pursuit of political power. That's why we should ignore the claims that the defense of democracy requires political prosecutions. On the contrary, the willingness of so much of the chattering classes to justify attempts to jail political opponents is antithetical to the survival of democracy in both countries. Contrary to the claims of their detractors, the legal wars against Trump and Netanyahu are not a matter of demonstrating that no one, no matter how powerful, is above the law. In fact, both men are being treated as if they are below the law. Such prosecutions only serve to undermine public confidence in the justice system. They convince supporters of those charged that there is a two-tiered system where political foes not favored by the legal apparatus are treated differently. No matter what you think of the two men, Israelis and Americans who care about preserving democracy should be hoping that the cases against Trump and Netanyahu end as quickly as possible, with neither man being convicted. The alternative is a scenario in which democracy, which relies on both sides accepting each other's legitimacy, is in real jeopardy of failing. The real threat to it doesn't come from conservatives in either country. It can be found in a political culture that has been embraced by the left and is willing to stop at nothing to crush opponents. When you hear stories like that, you think to yourself, where have I seen this play out before? And none of the places where it's played out before have ended up being in any kind of good shape. The other subject that I wanted to talk about is this whole transgender issue, because I think we have now made such a mess of it, and we are so incapable of dealing with it honestly, 
that both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, are in for a wild wake-up call come the next election. The Republican so-called preoccupation with transgender issues, which has resulted in hundreds of bills at the state and federal levels, that may excite people like me and the party's evangelical base. But analysts are now saying all that enthusiasm for restricting the rights and health care of about 0.6% of Americans risks putting off swing voters. Pollsters and strategists from both parties largely agree. Focusing on transgender issues could help Republicans in the general election if independent voters see the GOP as defending common sense school policies from woke gender ideology run amok. Or it could end up hurting Republicans if voters think they're just picking on a small, misunderstood set of individuals simply trying to live their lives. If you're talking about suburban parents who are concerned about what's going on in their public schools, this is an area where I think Republicans have a big opportunity. The tone of how this is handled is extremely important because the vast majority of people, regardless of their views on the trans issue, don't want to treat people, especially children, cruelly. It's clear that Republicans think it's a great idea to go for the parents and go against the trans activists, but it could ultimately bite Republicans in general elections unless they somehow miraculously make the debate all about parents and don't get any pushback from the Democrats. The bills that have been targeting transgender individuals this year are really not targeting much. Ten states have banned gender-affirming care for minors, and another 21 have introduced bills, even as multiple studies have found access to gender-affirming care reduced the risk of depression. In at least five states, the Republican Party proposed gender-affirming care bans would also cover adults. 19 states have also banned transgender students from participating in school sports, matching their gender identity. 16 states have offered bills that would restrict or ban drag performances, many of which are written broadly enough to restrict nearly all public cross-dressing. Republicans in Congress have followed suit with bills that would ban gender-affirming care for minors, prohibit schools from teaching students about gender identity without prior parental consent, and place limits on transgender individuals serving in the military. The House Education Committee recently held a hearing on a bill that would amend Title IX to require student-athletes to compete based on their gender at birth. If it passed, the bill would ban an estimated 32 openly transgender NCAA athletes out of 480,000 total from playing on their preferred teams. Is that a big deal or not? We really need to put these things into perspective. Republicans see many of the proposals as a natural backlash to rapidly changing societal norms around transgender issues that have, in some cases, gone from merely seeking acceptance to outright coaxing kids to transition. Voters will end up punishing the side that seems more extreme on the issue, according to Charles Marin, president of the Log Cabin Republicans. He thinks that has been the left at least so far. 
My prescription to the GOP, he said, would be tread very lightly on these issues, particularly as it deals with outreach to women. Women don't want to see people in society being picked on or marginalized. But at the same time, if you come after their kids, they're going to turn into mama bears. Marin thinks there's room for common sense policies, arguing measures that inform and empower parents about what's going on at school makes sense, such as the parental rights bill that passed the House last week on a party line vote. While laws that would ban gender affirming care or regulate drag queens like strippers do not. They're trying to counsel Republicans by saying, do not take this resurgence of parental rights and weaponize it into something that the voters truly can't get their head around. If you overreach, you will do so at your own peril. There's a good number of people in this country, and I'm one of them, who still don't understand the whole trans issue. It seems to me that when I was growing up, there were people who liked to dress up as women, drag queens, I guess you could call them, cross-dressers, and not many of them were ever featured publicly. I mean, there would be a couple of shows down in the village where I lived in New York where you could see these performers, and they were really exceptional and, and, and rare. All of a sudden, though, I'm confronted with the idea that little kids, little kids, know from an early age that they are in the wrong bodies. Despite what their anatomical reality is, we have now encouraged them to opt out of their own gender. And particularly when it comes to women, I see this as extremely dangerous. It took us so long to be recognized and to be accepted, for instance, with Title IX in the world of college athletics. And now to see that undermined by big, big, and I mean big guys, competing against women in organized collegiate sports just doesn't sit right with most of us. Maybe we don't understand all the nuances of transgenderism, but I can tell you one thing we do understand. Fair is fair and unfair is unfair. And we're sick and tired of being told that just because we don't like it, it's unfair. Maybe we just don't like it because it's not very likable. Anyway, thank you for listening to this No Restraint podcast. Of course, a new one will be coming your way sooner rather than later since I was late with this one. May God bless you and may God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.